All right, amen. How many of you have spent the night in Tehachapi? Raise your hands. Oh, some of you have. Wow. Did you have to or did you want to? Yes, okay, that's what I thought. Snowing up there. The land of four seasons. I was up there last Sunday, uh, privileged to teach at the Calvary Chapel in Tehachapi. What a sweet uh, fellowship, great group of people. They recently took over a... um, piece of property with a building on it, uh, and uh, they're uh, just very excited about what the Lord's doing up there, and so keep them in prayer. Uh, there was a guy up there, one of their elders, in fact, everybody that goes to, to church up there drives like 40 miles from Mojave uh, to, to go to church in Tehachapi because there's just nothing in Mojave, which I find that hard to believe. But uh, anyway, uh, there's a guy there who knows, who remembered me from 17 years ago at Calvary Chapel of Visalia. And so he introduced me. And, and you notice that, I don't know, you, you probably don't get introduced much. I don't either. But when you do, they, and, and you're from Hanford, they always want to talk about one thing. You know what that is, don't you? The water. They want to talk about the water. Uh, and so I've decided from now on, I'm just going to take that on uh, and act like it's their water that is strange because it doesn't smell and you can't see it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's clear and odorless. It's like a, you know, I mean a clear odorless liquid, it could be anywhere. Uh, whereas, you know, we know where our water is and, and, uh, then of course everybody sort of superior, then they go, oh, where's that? Uh, it's that one place, superior dairy. Yeah, superior dairy. They always sort of that. And, and so I let them know that the secret to superior dairy, not just the water, no, no, that would have been easy. Yeah, you got that. But the fact that the arsenic content in our water is so incredibly high, uh, you know, and then I, I kind of got ahead of myself and I started to suggest that if they make home churned ice cream, they might want to add arsenic to their. And I thought, wow, this is probably not good, you know, because sometimes people take you seriously if you're a pastor. Uh, and, and so I had to do a disclaimer and. I've been watching the Tehachapi News to see if, you know, there's been any, any problems, you know. But uh, anyway, so we did. We had a great time uh, up in Tehachapi. Missed you guys. I understood Jacob did a great job. Uh, and uh, so, uh, well, yeah, you can applaud. You are of Jacob. And uh, no, that's, that's fantastic. So uh, what a blessing to be back. And back in the book of Joshua. What a seamless segue that was, right? So let's open to Joshua chapter 14. And we're looking at verses 6 through 15 this morning. The topic there, one of the two oldest guys, Caleb, suddenly steps forward to demand the land that he had been promised as his inheritance 45 years earlier. The title of our message, Old guys rule. Verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, uh, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me and Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 
85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. And Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kerjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Let's pray together. Lord, we pause to pray because we want to humble ourselves before you and invite you to be our teacher. We ask for a sense of your presence and of the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that the things you want us to see, the things that you've ordained for us to hear, will come to our hearts and make a difference in our lives, that we would be more full of the grace of God and the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. Everywhere I go, people are constantly walking ahead of me in line to join with their family or their friends up ahead. They see nothing wrong with it. Maybe you see nothing wrong with it. I'm old school when it comes to taking cuts in line. It's just wrong. I'm in favor of hiring line police. Well, they have specialty police in every area. I was watching uh, television yesterday. Uh, you know, one of those educational channels and they were doing a thing on snakes and they were saying how there's uh, all of these pythons now loose in Florida. They've been, uh, you know, the, you get them as a baby and then all of a sudden you go into their cage one day and they're 85 feet long and so people are just doing what Americans would always do and let them go uh, and stuff. And so there's, uh, and plus the hurricanes and the weather. So there's all these huge pythons that are loose uh, and other poisonous snakes. Uh, and, uh, so I was, and so they have in this uh, Miami-Dade County, which must be all of Florida, right? Because everything's always in Miami-Dade County. But uh, they have the Venom Squad. It's a special squad that comes around and deals with snakes and anti-venom and things like that. And, and uh, just as an aside, the Venom Squad wanted to demonstrate for the Discovery Channel how you catch a python. So they had a python that they had perfectly caught. It was a perfectly well-kept caught python. They let it go so that they could demonstrate how to catch it. And sure enough, it bit the guy. I mean, he... He was showing this technique of how you have to sometimes get behind it while your partner distracts it. And, uh, and then you sneak up and grab it as close to the head as you can. Well, he got it a little bit not close enough, and the thing clamped on him. Then his partner comes over, and with all of their strength, while this guy's shooting blood all over the place, they're trying to get the mouth of this python open, and the python starts wrapping around the other guy. And I think what I always think in situations like that, what's with the camera guy? He's still, you know, I mean, drop the camera, put it on the tripod and help these guys, you know. This is insane. They finally got it under control. And I mean, it was a real life situation with guys. And well, hey, you can see what it does and stuff. I mean, it's just, it was insanity. 
the Venom Squad. And so I'm in favor of line police. In fact, I'm going to volunteer for line police duty uh, in Lemoore, give up being a chaplain and just become the line police. Uh, you know, people, they just don't respect lines anymore. However, there are exceptions to line behavior. And in our text, I have to admit, Caleb cuts in line. Joshua is about to begin casting lots to determine the inheritance of the tribes when Caleb breaks ranks and steps forward and asks for the portion already promised to him 45 years earlier by Moses. It's one of those times I have no problem with someone taking cuts. Caleb had already waited long enough. Plus, we're going to learn that he's a big, strong guy at age 85. You just can't take him on anyway. So one of the things that strikes you about his zeal, though, is that even though he's waited 45 years, he acts like Hebron was promised to him only yesterday. Through many discouragements, dangers, and potential difficulties, Caleb never lost sight of God's promise. It's an example, and it's a powerful one, of biblical hope. We use the word hope to describe things that may or may not come to pass. Every day I awake with the hope that I might be able to eat spaghetti that day. Uh, you know, it's just a, it just it's a thing with me. But uh, I know that usually it's not going to come to pass because there are other people that want to eat as well. Now, the Bible presents hope as a certainty. When, when there's biblical hope, it means it's going to happen. We are looking for the blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ. It's not that we're hoping he might come back. It's that we know that he will come back. Caleb was certain he would inherit Hebron no matter how long he had to wait. Encouraged by his daily hope, when the time finally arrived, he could not contain himself. He then put his whole heart into claiming and conquering his portion. We're going to focus on his hope and on his heart and make them our own this morning. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, put your hope in the word the Lord has spoken to you. And number two, put your heart into the word the Lord has spoken to you. First of all, let's put our hope in the word the Lord has spoken in verses six through nine. Forty-five years earlier, the Israelites had stood on the verge of entering the promised land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Moses sent 12 men in to spy out the land. It seems that each man was assigned a particular parcel or portion of the land to spy out and then come back and give his report upon it. Ten of the spies exaggerated the dangers and the difficulties. They claimed, for example, that the land was filled with giants when only a small percentage of the population were descended from the Anakim. And as we'll see, most of those were where Caleb was going. Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. They urged the people to press forward and by faith conquer the land. The sense you get is that they, they didn't even understand what these guys were talking about because the, the spy mission wasn't to decide whether they were going into the land. It was just to give a reconnaissance. And now all of a sudden, this committee of 10 decided we better not even go in. And, and they started to take control and ultimately... Jacob, or Joshua and Caleb were outnumbered and they were overruled and the people decided not to go. Because of their unbelief, the Lord told the Israelites that the entire generation over the age of 20 would never enter the promised land. The Israelites were then made to wander in the wilderness for nearly 40 years while that entire generation died. Joshua and Caleb were accepted from that. After the 40 years, they would enter the land and they would receive their inheritance 
it was time. And so in verse 6, the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Kenizzites were not Israelites. They were Edomites, a people descended from Jacob's brother Esau. They were distant cousins to the Jews uh, and often antagonistic to the Jews. God is reminding you that Caleb was not a naturally born Jew. Somewhere along the line, he had been adopted into a family of Jews and had converted to Judaism. The very first person to receive an inheritance in the promised land, the land promised to the Jews, was not a naturally born Jew. It's fantastic that God puts these little details in the path for us. It's a reminder that God is a whosoever will Savior. This is the land promised to the Jews, to Abraham and his descendants. And then the very first guy who gets his portion is a convert to Judaism, is somebody who is actually outside of the family of God until he converts. And so we've seen in the book of Joshua, Rahab the harlot. We've seen the Gibeonites. Now we see Caleb, all individuals who you would normally think had no portion in the promised land, and yet God, because He is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, gives them their portion, and oftentimes a great portion. And so we need to remember that God is searching for those to save. He loves the human race, He died to save us, and He is seeking those uh, to believe in Him. Verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Now, make no mistake, this was an honor. It was an honor and a privilege to be one of those 12 men. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of fighting men, and to be one of 12 in a group that large to be sent in was an amazing thing. Caleb the Kenizzite had been at the, we would say, the very top of his profession. He was at the top of his game. He was full of faith. He was living righteously. He was anticipating life in the promised land. He was raring to go. And then suddenly, almost without warning, everything around him crashed. Verse 8, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. Just as an aside, as a footnote, don't be the kind of person that makes other people's hearts melt. Uh, you know, if people are excited about something, they're raring to go, they want to serve the Lord, don't throw cold water on that. Don't be a wet blanket. Those are the only two cliches I can think of this morning. Uh, but but don't, let, you know, don't tear that away from people. Uh, let them be excited about serving the Lord. And so... Uh, Caleb and Joshua stood against the fears of the other spies. By the way, he leaves out the part about them wanting to kill him and Joshua. It wasn't that they just disagreed. They didn't agree to disagree agreeably. They said, we're going to kill you. Not only are we not going in, we want to kill you. Uh, it was a very bad day for Joshua and for Caleb and for God's people. But on that very bad day, God gave Caleb his word. Verse 9, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. 
Caleb had gone from 40-year-old warrior to 40-year wanderer in a moment's time. It wasn't something that he brought on himself. It was something that resulted from the disbelief of others. He had been despised and hated and threatened with death by his peers for doing and saying what was right. For the next four decades plus, he would live in a culture of death, watching as everyone over 20 died in the wilderness. He knew that once the next generation entered the land, he would still need to fight, even though he would be in his 80s by then. Have I painted a bleak enough picture? It was worse than the people you work with. It was worse than your family. It was worse than your church. It was worse than anything you've imagined, probably, or is equal to it at least. A righteous man walking with the Lord, living for the Lord at the top of his game, and then all of a sudden all of that is taken away, and it's taken away from him for four and a half decades, and he's asked to wait until he's an old man to receive the fulfillment of God's promise. Was he discouraged? Did he get depressed? Not at all. He had the word that the Lord had spoken to him, and it was his daily hope. Discouragement is a powerful enemy to your Christian walk. Uh, Anybody that wants to go into the ministry or anybody that's doing a ministry, I always like to tell them that probably the number one thing that they're going to face is discouragement. Depression is a prevalent reality, even among Christians. Both are reasons why it is important to remember that you, too, have the word which the Lord has spoken to you. If you want to know what the secret of Caleb's life seems to be, it's that he had God's word and it was meaningful to him. Now, the Lord has spoken to you on at least three levels that I can identify this morning. First, he has spoken to every believer in the precepts and principles of the word of God in the Bible. When your life is crashing around you and people are against you and time seems to be passing you by and things seem incredibly unfair, you have God's word. Now, as we've said nearly every week in our studies in Joshua, your land is wherever you find yourself. It's your home or your office, your school, your church. It's your marriage and family, your job, career, your class, your classmates. God has spoken his word to you in each of those areas, and he tells you how to act and to react. Yes, it's a general word to all believers, but it's a word to you personally. When God tells you what goes on in a marriage or how to act at work or what happens in his church, he's talking generally but specifically to every Christian. And his word should give you hope, and it will when you follow it with your whole heart. Now, second, God speaks to us on what I might call a personal level or a more personal level. It is when you are reading his word and you get that wonderful sense that the verse or verses are speaking directly to you. Or maybe someone shares a verse or verses with you and they go directly to your situation and they put it into a new spiritual perspective. It's possible for this to happen because God's word is alive and powerful. And I'll bet if you thought about it enough, if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 minutes, this has happened to you where God's word came to you and you you were just reading it and all of a sudden, wow, that sounds like what I need to know right now today. Often when a person is seeking biblical counsel 
I will ask them what they've been reading in God's word or hearing taught from God's word. A lot of times God has already counseled us from his word. We don't always see it because we're in the midst of the difficulty or the discouragement or the problem. And we think, well, you know, that was my devotion or that was my Sunday study or I heard this on the radio. And we we forget that God wants to speak to us and he is doing that. And so I'll say, well, what has God been, you know, where have you been reading? And they'll say, oh, this morning I, you know, I was drawn to or I happened to be in my devotions in Ephesians. And I say, well, let's look at that and we'll start reading that. And more often than not, we'll realize that God has already spoken in that very chapter, in that very verse a word to encourage you and to strengthen you. Third, God still speaks to us on what we might call a more prophetic level. Now, the Bible is prophetic as it is, and certainly when a verse or verses come alive in my heart, that's prophetic. But in addition, there are times God speaks to you, I believe, more directly. It may be through a waking vision or a spiritual dream. It may be through the exercise of the gift of prophecy in a meeting of the saints as someone shares a word or a scripture with you. Whatever is shared must always be judged against scripture, and it must always align with what God has already said in the Bible. Just because a person says, God told me this, doesn't mean it's true, unfortunately. A lot of times people misunderstand. But having said that, a word of prophecy does have its place in the overall scheme of the word the Lord has spoken to you. It can be very precious. It can be very powerful. Most of you have been around for a number of years, know the story of our coming here to Hanford in 1985. And as a part of it, God shared a a beautiful metaphor with my wife that was then confirmed in a vision that a guy had down in San Bernardino. Uh, It was an exercise of the gift of prophecy. We probably would have come anyway, uh, but it was a real neat encouragement. And I'll tell you where it's been really encouraging. It's been encouraging over the years when we could have been depressed uh, and discouraged because there are times when I thought, okay, Lord, you see what's happening. Are you sure you want us here? And, and I had that word of prophecy. And then there's other times I said, okay, Lord, uh, I'm sure you don't want us here. Uh, and then I've had that word. And then there's times I've said, I don't want to be here. And I've had that word. And so it can be very powerful. It can be very encouraging uh, on that personal prophetic level. Uh, Again, not every time a person says, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, the Lord's given me a word for you, judge that, test it by the word of God. Word of God is our measuring stick. It is our canon. It is our, it is our uh, you know, guide. But the Lord is always seeking to speak to us in these ways. We could add to that just metaphors and examples in the world. Uh, as you just are going through your daily life and you see something and God brings a spiritual analogy to you. Think of Jesus and the way he would teach. He's just walking along and and he'd say he'd see a sower out in a field sowing seed and he'd say, hey, guys, you know, the word of God, it's like a sower sowing seed, isn't it? And, And there are lots of ways that God is speaking to us or desiring to speak to us if we would have the ears to hear. Now, Caleb bursts onto the scene at age 85, taking cuts in line to demand his inheritance. You can tell that every day for 45 long years, about 40 years at wandering and seven more years of, of warring against these Canaanite people, he lived with the hope of the word he had already been given by God. Four decades of dis- possible discouragement filled with danger and the potential for depression had not dampened his spiritual zeal. 
if and when you find yourself discouraged or possibly depressed, you probably need to return to the word the Lord has spoken to you. Nothing else can give you the kind of hope that God's word can give you. Nothing else. No technique, no method, no program, no person, only the word of God. Discover or rediscover that word from God. Usually it's a verse or verses you will read today or tomorrow, or a verse or verses you've noted in the margin of your Bible that were God's encouragement to give you hope. It might be a word of prophecy once given to you or still to be given. It won't change your situation necessarily. Things may not get better outwardly. God gave Caleb this fantastic word. You are going to inherit that land. But it didn't change the fact that he had to wait 45 years to do it. Or that he had to fight to do it. But the word that the Lord has spoken to you will radically alter your perspective. Inwardly, you will rejoice in the Lord as you enjoy his presence in the midst of either your problems or your prosperity. There's a sense in which always in these stories, uh, like looking at, at Caleb, the goal isn't just to get to Hebron and to build a house and settle down. The goal is the daily walking with Jesus Christ. And whether you're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, whether you're warring against Canaanite warriors for seven years, or whether you're finally conquering the land, if you're in fellowship with your God, that's really what's important. That's really the priority. And, and that's what Caleb teaches us. And there's also a beautiful picture here. Uh, think about Caleb. All the believers, as it were, all the Israelites standing there about to receive their inheritance. And Caleb, with boldness, steps up to Joshua and says, I want my inheritance. I, I've been looking forward to it. I've been planning for it. I want it right now. And there's a sense in which, as you understand that all of us as Christians one day, when the Lord takes us home in the rapture of the church and he raises the church, that we will stand before the Lord. And, and I don't know exactly how all that's going to work out, but we ought to have the same excitement to step forward and say to Jesus, our Joshua, Lord, I want my inheritance. I want that mansion that you've been preparing for me. I want to know what it is that will truly satisfy me. I've, I've had some ideas in my Christian life and, and all that uh, of what it would take to satisfy me and to fill my heart. I've tried some things that didn't work out that I'm sorry about, and I've had some successes and some failures. But, Lord, I'm anxious to see what your inheritance for me is. What kind of a house is going to make me happy? What's going to be on the walls of that house? What's that going to be all about? Who's my neighbor going to be in eternity? You ever think about that? An eternal neighbor? Wow. God knows. And I'm anxious to find out. It'll be a blessing. When hope fills your heart, it also affects your living. Verses 10 through 15, put your heart into the word that the Lord has spoken to you. At age 85, Caleb was looking back over the past 45 years. Were they a waste? Were they a bummer? Were they unfair? I mean, really think about it. I don't want to keep belaboring this, but it's very important. Through no fault of his own, he was relegated to living the prime years of his life as a desert wanderer among a people who had failed their God Oftentimes, I've talked to people, and so have you, and maybe, you know, we've been that person at, some, at different times where we look at our life and we think, man, I'm just wasting the best years of my life. I'm wasting them at this job, at this church, in this marriage, in this family. 
And I want to break out of that and enjoy the best years of my life while I still have a chance. And so Caleb, I think, speaks to us maybe like no other character. He looked at those decades instead from God's perspective. In verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. Caleb said, the Lord kept me alive. He was just happy to be alive. What a simple yet profound perspective. Every day, a gift from God to be opened with him in a walk of humble dependence upon his grace and mercy. Verse 11, and uh, as yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Caleb is one of those guys that aged well. Uh, you know, there's some people, you look at them, you say, how old do you think that guy is? And you say, well, he looks like he's maybe 58, 59, but since you're asking, he's probably 60. I say, no, he's 85. You're blown away. Wow, what's his secret? Well, chances are it's genetics. And then there's other people, like most of us. How old do you think that guy is? Oh, maybe 59. No, he's 38. And you're just tore up way before your time, you know. So now the reason I say that, two reasons. Number one, to get a little laugh. Number two, I don't want anybody to get discouraged thinking, well, I'm, you know, my life's falling apart uh, because my life is falling apart, uh, you know, physically. I mean, I'm just not the man I used to be. And I never was that man uh, to begin with. And so that's really that really makes it odd. Uh, but uh, you, this isn't really about physical strength. Now, in Caleb's remember when we're dealing with the children of Israel, Oftentimes, God is using the physical to teach us the spiritual. Plus, let me add to this. We saw in a previous study that Joshua wasn't in such good shape. Remember, God came to him and said, Joshua, you're old. And the indication of the particular phrase was, you're not doing so well. The years have been tough on you. So it's not that, you know, if you have great faith, you'll have great health. But the idea here is that, what was physically true of Caleb needs to be spiritually true of us. After all, we're not really going out and fighting giants and conquering armies. Our giants and the armies we face are mostly spiritual. So there's a sense in which that even though my outward man perishes day by day, even though I'm deteriorating, my inward man, my spiritual life is strengthened day by day moment by moment as I depend upon the Lord. And so I can be a spiritual Caleb. And so in verse 12, he says, Therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Caleb wants the land he had spied out and was promised to him. In one sense, it was the worst land because it was the most difficult to conquer. We learn here that it was mountainous terrain. That always puts an attacker at a disadvantage if you're on foot. The cities were heavily fortified. Again, a tremendous disadvantage to the conquest. And it was there that a concentration of giants lived. The very giants that had so filled the ten spies and the Israelites with fear 45 years earlier. The Anakim, or sometimes they're called the sons of Anak... Uh, they pop up occasionally in Old Testament history. So let me tell you a little bit about them. 
They are giants who arrived in Canaan hundreds of years before the Israelites ever got there. In the Old Testament, they have many different names because the different peoples around Canaan each had their own descriptions for them. In one place, they're called the Rephaim, or the Rephaim, meaning the shadowy, or the ghostly, or the mysterious ones. The people of Moab called them the Amims, meaning terrors, or horrible ones. There's one place where they're called the Zamzumims. That's my favorite. Because people, uh, and that means, Zamzumim means a people who speak gibberish. Apparently, no one around them could understand a word they said. And so here in the land were these big guys. Goliath was uh, one of the sons of Anak. Later on, he's about nine feet, nine inches tall. And he's a big guy. And if you're walking, maybe you're out taking a walk in Canaan, and you have this sense, this ghostly, mysterious sense that someone is watching you or following you. And, And then... You see this person, and and it's terrifying to you because he looks so horrible. And then he looks at you and he goes, (laughs) and you don't know if he means I'm going to eat you or hi, how you doing? You know, and I mean, so it's a kind of a terrifying thing that's going on uh, there in the promised land. Now, ten spies had compared these giants to the weird offspring of demons in Genesis that were associated with the global flood. You can read about it in Genesis 6. Because they had made a connection, some people think they somehow descended from them. But they're just saying, hey, these guys remind us of what we read in Genesis. The truth is they are most likely run-of-the-mill giants, like those we still sometimes get today in the gene pool. Can you say Andre the Giant? Uh, I mean, there are big people. I mean, really huge people sometimes. And giantism is a real thing. There is some archaeological evidence I ran across that the Anakim were originally mercenaries, originally hired by Canaanite princes as bodyguards. And so you're uh, you're in the land of Canaan, and uh, while you're sending people out to travel, you say, hey, if you find anybody who's really big, ask them to come back and be my bodyguard. Uh, he won't understand you at first and he'll go, <laughs> but you, you know, get the idea. And we see this even today. I mean, there are people, celebrities, most notably who have bodyguards, uh, and they're big usually, you know, not always, but a lot of these guys, you know, they, they're, you know, they're well into the six foot five, six, you know, 350 pound, they're gigantic guys, uh, that can sit on you if nothing else, you know? Now, for my money, I'd rather have Bruce Lee or, for that matter, just a gun. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's something imposing about being, a, you know, having a, a big bunch of bodyguards around. So these guys are just, they're big guys, giants from all over the known world that came and started to hang out in Canaan and uh, have their own families and uh, produce genetically after their kind. Caleb demanded what God had promised him. Nothing more, nothing less. Caleb didn't come and say, hey, I'm Caleb. Remember me? Me and you, we're simpatico. We're the only two. Hmm? You know, I mean, he didn't have bumper stickers on his chariot that said one of two or anything, you know, uh, anything. I mean, he just, he didn't say I deserve more because of what I've been through. He just wanted what God had uh, promised him. He didn't want any less either. He might have asked for an easier portion. I don't think I would have faulted him. 
Here's a guy that watched every, that they wanted to kill him. My, my ancestors wanted to kill him. My ancestors all died in the wilderness. He had to endure 40 years of wandering and, and all of that. If he had come and said, hey, I want Gene's inheritance. All right. You know, I mean, I, it, you're Caleb after all. You deserve it. But he just, he just wanted what he had coming to him, what God had set apart for him. I think sometimes we miss the mark because we want a different portion, usually an easier portion than the Lord has given to us. Whether it's marriage or employment or ministry, we convince ourselves we've earned or that we deserve something other than we've been given by God. We need to be careful and claim what we've been given, not what we think we want or deserve. It's a very common error and uh, one that we need to avoid. When Caleb said, it may be that the, uh, that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out, he was expressing a proper humility. Though filled with zeal and just as strong as ever, he still needed to depend upon the Lord. He still needed to discover God's plan. He still needed to be led. Experience can be a great thing, even especially spiritual experience. And resources are wonderful. I, I think that's great. But they can't substitute for faith and waiting upon the Lord. No matter how many or how few resources we have, no matter how much or how little experience we have, we need to pray, seek the Lord, wait upon Him, and walk by faith. Uh, the chapter closes, verse 13 through 15. Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Hebron was an amazing place spiritually, especially if you were a Jew. God had spoken to Abraham at Hebron. It was there he had promised Abraham and Sarah their son. It was thus symbolic of fellowship with God that resulted in promises. Giants had settled there and fortified it. Caleb knew that it must be retaken. And it stands as a symbol, therefore, in our lives. If giant problems or pressures have taken away my fellowship with God and nullified his promises to me, I must retake fellowship. Get back into Hebron. Get up early. Stay up late. Storm the strongholds through prayer and reading the word. Reestablish devotions. Caleb put his whole heart into his inheritance. Nothing half-hearted or tentative about him. He wasn't looking for a way out. He wasn't planning any retreat. He didn't let bitterness or resentment dominate his thoughts. He refused to make excuses or act as though he had made a mistake or that life was unfair or that other people had caused this problem. Only you and I can answer whether or not our whole heart is invested in God's promises. I'll use the example of marriage because it's... Uh, common. Often it seems in a marriage that there is half-heartedness. One spouse is saying, you know, that, hey, I will change. I will commit to the marriage as soon as you commit to the marriage. And, and there's that half-heartedness. And while you're half-hearted, you are planning your way of escape. And part of that plan usually is that you're already investing emotionally in another person. Because you can't talk to your spouse anymore, but you need to talk to somebody. And so you start talking to another person. And gee whiz, it's almost always somebody from the opposite sex. 
Uh, and, and, and it's because I think it starts with a half-heartedness. It's not your spouse that's the problem. Caleb didn't say it's every Israelite besides Joshua and Moses. You know what? He could have said that because it was. In his case, it was true. But he said, I don't care about that. I have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. I don't care what other people do. The, and the, and the, the way that comes into our lives is, I don't care what my wife does. I don't care what my husband does. I don't care what my church does. I don't care what my boss or my fellow employee. I don't care what anybody does. I have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. I know what I ought to do. And I can't use any of that as an excuse. Because when I do, I become half-hearted and I will never have victory the way the Lord wants me to. Because what I'm saying to the Lord is, as soon as my circumstances are perfect or much better than they are, man, I will connect with you, Lord. I will get so into walking with you, it's unbelievable. And it really never works that way. It can't work that way because God says there's no faith involved in that. You want to walk by sight. I want you to walk by faith because ultimately, it's like I said earlier, what's most important is that it's you and the Lord in a good marriage, in a bad marriage, in a good ministry, in a not so good ministry, in a good employment, in a bad employment. It's you and the Lord living and walking wholeheartedly for him. And that's what Caleb did. I mean, if anybody's going to be bitter and resentful, it's Caleb. And instead he said, "Okay, this is the day I was designed for. It's been delayed. I've had to hope in it day in and day out, be thankful that I'm still alive. I've missed the best years of my life, but I'm going to go for it because this is the Lord's plan. And you know what? I haven't really missed a day because every day has been filled with Jesus. And so what's the difference? Whether I'm in Hebron, whether I'm at Gilgal, whether I'm on this side of the Jordan or that side, because I'm with the Lord. The same can be true for you. There should be no doubt you will be successful in all the lands that God has given you to possess. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these things. We thank you for Caleb. We can't wait to meet him in heaven and uh, have all of these stories filled out for us, Lord, to understand exactly what it was like to be among those people and how he kept himself going on a daily basis to rejoice with him, Lord, in his conquest. We'll see him again before we're done with this book and we thank you for that we'll see what a great father he was and how he prepared for the next generation as well god we thank you so much and i pray that we would lock into this and uh, forget our circumstances and our situation whether it's something physical whether it's an illness or a problem whether it's a person or a situation and we would just throw ourselves wholeheartedly into our relationship with you that we would experience your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your love so that they're overflowing. The best years of our life, Lord, are right now as we walk with you. They're not ahead of us. They're not behind us. They're today. Because today is all you've promised us and you could come at any moment. And so help us, Lord, to be those that invest ourselves with a sense of abandon in knowing you and serving you. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said, Amen. Stand, please.